yes, we're back to three services. And people always ask me, do you like three services? You get to preach three times? No, it's because I get to do what we just did three times. After I graduated from college in Missouri, and after a one-year internship in Kansas, actually not very far from, from where Glenn is, I, my wife Tana and I and our one-year-old son Stephen moved to Colorado Springs to serve in our first church. It was a Bible church, quite small, meeting in a small, ugly, concrete building, kind of looked like a bunker, and I was the associate pastor at the ripe old age of 24. Church was so small that I had to work an outside job. That's how I actually got into banking. Uh, but my heart was with the church, and I worked, well, I worked way too many hours. Through our eight years there, my responsibilities included things like youth ministry, singles ministry, children's church, um, occasional preaching and teaching, evangelistic home Bible studies, uh, life groups or small groups, we called them, pretty much everything except senior pastor. The senior pastor was a guy named Mark, and he and I had delusions of grandeur that the church would grow and that one day I would be able to quit the bank and work full-time at the church. Only problem, church never really grew. Well, God, there was about 60 people, doubled in size in that eight years to a whopping total of 120, but the finances never really quite got to the place where I could quit the bank. But I stayed and worked and worked and, and worked long hours, long weeks, long years. Our other two sons were born, so the five of us were living in a single wide trailer right there on the church property, made it easy to work. One day while I was at the church, Mark came stomping into my office. He was fuming. He said, you're, you're not going to believe this. Paul, who was a close mutual uh, friend of ours and one of four elders in the church counting Mark and me, had just finished a conversation with the senior pastor. He told Mark that he was arrogant, that he needed to stop trying to control everything and let his elders be elders and to let me be a, a pastor. You see, the running joke around the church was that I was a pastor in the making. Someone had even given me a, a nameplate that read junior pastor. I never let on that, that kind of stung a little bit. Truth was, I was young and learning and, <laughs> and I'm sure quite inept. Well, well, that event happened seven years into our eight-year tenure there, and I knew Mark quite well. The truth is, he was arrogant. I had surmised that one of the reasons that we had not grown was because as good a preacher as he was, he wasn't much of a pastor. In case you didn't get it, he was arrogant. Always right, his way or the highway. So I made a tactical blunder that day. When he came stomping in, I suggested he sit down. And I told him that Paul was right. Now, telling an arrogant man that he's arrogant can be dangerous. For the next year, through our entire eighth year there, he hardly spoke to me. We had been close friends, best friends, actually. But all of our conversations suddenly became Official, stilted, just business, ministry-related, no, no real relationship. So after a year, 
I walked into an elder meeting. There were still just four of us, and I tendered my resignation, left, and never went back. I was deeply wounded. Now, now to be fair, you've heard one side of the story, and I just want to suggest to you, when you've heard one side of the story, that's, that's all you've heard. Truth is, we were hurt, and we left vocational ministry for three years. I poured my heart into banking. I, I, I was not sure that we would ever go back. We did serve in another church as a volunteer, but frankly, I and my family enjoyed me working only, only 50 hours a week as opposed to 80 hours for the previous eight years, not making that up. We were deeply wounded by Mark and his wife, Lori. We'd felt a call to ministry, prepared for ministry. We served without pay for eight years. To that point in our married lives, we had never felt so used, uh, abused, and abandoned. I never went back to that church. But here's, here's my question. What should I have been willing to do? What should I have been willing to give or to give up to forgive Mark and reconcile our relationship? And you say, now wait just a minute. I know that we've heard one side of the story, but even if it's mostly right, Mark is the one who wronged you. What should, what should he do to reconcile the relationship? That's the question. He should have sought your forgiveness. Okay. So that's my story. What's yours? I want you to think of the most grievous wrong that you've ever endured. And it may be much worse than mine. Truth is, I could tell you of some other things that my wife and I have faced individually and together, much, much worse, but way too personal. What's the worst thing that you've ever faced? The most egregious wrong you've ever experienced? What should you have done? What should you perhaps do to forgive the offender? Well, you say, I, I shouldn't do anything. I did Let's be clear, I didn't do anything wrong. I was the one wronged. He or she should seek me out, come crawling back on their knees, grovel just a little bit or a lot, and maybe if they're lucky, I'll forgive them. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 in our continuing study of that book. Paul has just finished recording an early him in verses 15 to 20. Amazing piece of prose. Took us three weeks to get through it. That, that describes greatest glory and majesty and supremacy to Jesus Christ. We were overwhelmed to see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. That means he's the highest in rank of all creation. He was the agent of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. In fact, he is the end of creation. He is the head of the new creation that we call the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn, highest in rank of the resurrection. He is supreme in everything. In fact, he is, listen to this, he is full deity. This God-man we found to be awesome and perfect. Now, that means that he never did anything wrong to anybody. And yet we also found that he was the reconciler. 
an awesome list that ascribed highest supremacy to Jesus so that all things will be summed up in him so that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father to the triune God. It's amazing. We, 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 we get that. But, but, but as forgiven people of, of the gospel, we forget, don't we, sometimes the magnitude of that last point? Last one on the list, he is the reconciler. Yeah, I, I know, he's, that's the reason he came to earth, to reconcile lost, rebellious sinners to God. But I want to remind you that we were the offenders. He was perfect. He was the offended party. And so it would seem that uh, based on the way that we think that other world religions have it right, that we are the ones who should grovel just a bit and work our tails off to appease the offended God of the universe. Kind of makes sense to me, makes sense to everyone else, but God did not do that. As a result of the fall of humankind into sin, all of creation stands against God, guilty before Him, even creation itself groans, has been subjected to futility and waiting for Jesus to come back and to make all things right. Don't know if you've noticed, but this universe in which we find ourselves is a mess. We get that. But now having said at the end of the hymn that God has set about to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of the cross of Jesus, all things, all, okay, whether in the heavens or on, on the earth, Paul now applies that truth to his readers in Colossae and, frankly, to us. See, in verses 15 to 20, he had, he'd lapsed into indirect speech, all, all kind of third person. But now he turns his dir attention directly to us, second person, verses 21 to 23. In fact, verse uh, first two words, first two words of this one sentence in the Greek are in the emphatic, and you. Put your name there. And you. Read it with me. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's that amazing. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel you've heard, which proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which I, Paul, was made a minister. So, what is the most egregious offense that you have ever endured? Got it? I want to suggest this morning that it is nothing compared to our collective rebellion against our Creator. Almost 7 billion people on the planet, plus all of those who have ever lived, multiplied by multiple sins and you have a seemingly infinite number of egregious sins committed against a most holy God. And he, the offended party, set out to reconcile us. <laughs> Alienated, hostile, 
sinful people to himself. And I want to suggest that he also set an example to us in our reconciliation for the way that we ought to treat other people. We're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to be different. I want you to understand the enormity, the enormity of your rebellion. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 18th century. Historians tell us that he was largely responsible, he and George Whitfield, for the great awakening in the new colonies before we were even a nation, a revival like we've never seen or never seen or ever seen since. A key founder of Princeton University, a great theologian, one of the greatest minds that this country has ever produced. Unfortunately, while he was a pastor and wrote many excellent sermons, I've read some, the only one that most of us know is, right, say it together, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But it is an excellent sermon. I actually have it on my iPod. I listen to it every once in a while to be reminded of how egregiously I have offended a holy God, to be reminded of the magnitude of His grace. You see, in this sermon, Edwards tries tries to paint a picture of the depth of our depravity and our offense against God. So let me, that is a backdrop, let me read in part what he said, and I want you to compare it to the greatest offense you've endured. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in the world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there was no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. that make you feel warm and fuzzy? We don't preach like that anymore. People wouldn't come. Fearsome words. Awesome words. True words. In our sinful rebellion, we have offended a holy God. And the rational, reasonable human thing to do would be to try to, to appease him, to work really hard to make things right. Maybe I can just kind of fly under the radar and he won't notice me. Maybe, maybe, maybe God grades on the curve and, and I'm not as bad as 
It's what all the other world religions try to do, try to appease him. Here's the problem. We never could. In our vain attempts, we would still be guilty. So knowing our plight, God, the offended party, became the reconciler. He reconciled us to himself through the, listen, through the death of his own son. Paul applies this truth of the hymn to his readers, to you and to me. We're going to look at this. We're going to see first our deplorable, our horrible condition, verse 21. And then God's gracious intervention, verse 22. And then we're going to see the expected, I should add, faithful response, verse 23. And that's a little bit challenging. Paul says in verse 21, see, he highlights our need of reconciliation. And, and you, although you were formerly, that means once, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. This is who we once were. We were once alienated. We were hostile in mind. The word alienated means to be estranged from, separated from. We were alienated from, estranged from, separated from God. In fact, it's actually a bit worse. He says we were hostile in mind. That is amazing to stop and think about. We were hostile. The word speaks of being and antagonistic toward, unfriendly toward, an enemy of our creator. We were the created beings. He was the creator. And we had the audacity, talk about arrogance, the audacity to be antagonistic and hostile toward him. And please notice it started within. We thought about it in our minds. We reasoned in our fallen intellect and made a decision to be hostile toward God. What? We were by nature alienated and hostile. It was our internal makeup. I know we don't like to hear that. In fact, as guilty people, we generally want to downplay our sinfulness. Go to prison, I understand, it's full of lots of innocent people. We like to downplay our sinfulness. We especially like to do that in our children, right? Ah, oh, he's not really a bad boy. She's really a good girl. He just got in the wrong crowd. You know, that's like somehow your child's sinful choices were not his own. They were somebody else's. You do understand that the other child's parent is saying the same thing about your kid. We say things like, I, I didn't really mean to. It just kind of slipped out. just kind of happened. It's not really who I am. Really. We minimize our sin. We are, you see, somehow convinced that people are generally good and that sometimes they do bad things. Isn't that right? And then what the media tells us, people are generally good and sometimes they do bad things. The opposite is actually true. People are generally bad and sometimes they slip up and do something good. Because we are naturally alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. It's our nature to do so. This is what Paul is saying. We do evil deeds because it's who we are. We are alienated. We're hostile. Read Romans 1. Not only did we have the audacity to rebel against God and choose evil. At the end of the chapter, we applaud those who join us. 
That's bad news. But you got to have bad news before you can have good news. So even when we were in that deplorable condition, and by the way, a condition that we could do nothing about, <laughs> he reconciled us in his fleshly body through death. That's obviously Jesus. Jesus is the one who died for us. He took on human flesh so that he could die a human death, just like we do. But there is a significant difference between his death and our death. He was not alienated. He was not hostile. He never, ever engaged in a single evil deed. So therefore, he did not deserve death. Right? We get that. The wages of sin is death. We, we die because we sin. Jesus never sinned. He was fully God and fully man. We've looked at that over the past few weeks. And therefore did not deserve to die. But die he did. He came as the perfect God-man in the flesh to die the perfect sacrifice. And by his sacrifice, he made reconciliation with God a possibility for those who believe. Very quick side note here, this body of flesh literally translated, some feel that that's a, I'm just, just very quickly cover this, that that's a jab at these false teachers, that they were saying, uh, they had this kind of Greek dualistic thought, and, and they saw matter as evil. We can talk about this when we get to chapter two. That's why they were into self-abasement and self-denial, and they said, no, there's no way since matter is evil, since this is evil, there's no way that Jesus could have come in the flesh. And that's why when you get to chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says very clearly, in Jesus, all the fullness that deity dwells in. Oh, by the way, bodily form. Jesus was fully man, clearly taught in Scripture. The author of Hebrews says it this way. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like the, his brethren, that's us, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He had to become flesh like us so that he could become the propitiation for our sins. He didn't have any. One proof, chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses since he was one with us, but one who has been tempted in all things just like we are, but notice, yet without sin. The point of all of that is we were sinners, he was not. We were the off offending party, he was the offended party. All sin is ultimately committed against God. David makes this clear in Psalm 51. And yet the offended party, did you get this? Took on flesh so that in his perfect sinless life, he would die to reconcile me to God. Purpose in that. Verse 22, he goes on to say, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He'd, he'd said it that way uh, to the church at, at Ephesus. Christ loved the church. Uh, I want you to catch those words. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her to himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but holy and blameless. I want you to understand something, just a quick little aside. I know, listen to me, I know that it's very popular today to bash the church. I know. I know that lots of young people are leaving the church and being critical of the church. I know. They give lots of really good reasons why they're leaving the church. I want you to understand something. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm going to suggest, rather than being critical and kicking the church to the curb, why don't you man up and do something about it? Love her, help her, but never leave her. In his reconciling work, Jesus said, we will be through, or Paul says, through the work of God's Son, we will be forgiven and presented. That's that future time. In the future, we will be presented to God holy, (laughs) like Jesus. That means apart from sin. We were born in sin, but through the finished work of Christ on his cross, our sin has been removed from us so that we can be called holy. You see, there is a demand that must be met in order to see God. The author of Hebrews said this as well. He said, Without holiness, no one will see God. You feel uncomfortable about that? You can't because of what Christ has done for you. Not only that, in his work, he made us blameless. Trust me, we were not blameless. There's plenty of guilt in our thoughts and in our words and our actions which make us blameworthy, every one of us. But he made us to stand before God blameless. What that means, here, listen, this is really cool. No accusation can be laid to your account. No accusation can be brought against you. Right? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So here Satan is, and every time he lays a charge, say, hey, look at what Scott just did. Hey, he's guilty. Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father and says, hey, Father, I got that one. Not only that, we will be presented beyond reproach. Again, nothing laid to our account, nothing laid to our charge. Search as you will. We, are beyond, we will be a beyond reproach when presented before God. It brings over a last very challenging point. We were alienated and hostile within, which produced evil deeds without. Nothing we could do about our condition, so... The Son of God stepped in for us. He became our substitute. It's called the substitutionary atonement, dying in our place so that we could be forgiven, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, by grace, through faith. We we, we, we get that. But now Paul has to keep writing. I mean, this is like one sentence in the Greek, and he just won't shut up because he says there's an expected response from believers. You will be these things, you know, holy, blameless, above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all the creation under heaven. What? That sounds just a little bit challenging. That sounds like my salvation is dependent on me continuing the faith. Then what it says? 
firmly established, steadfast. Those are building terms. And I got to stay solid. I got to not move away. And it, and it seems like if we, if we do move away from the gospel that we heard, then what? Well, then we lose our salvation, right? Well, not exactly. You see, there are several things that we need to grapple with here. First, he says, if we continue in the faith, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, he is saying that we prove the reality of our faith. If we do not continue and we move away from the hope of the gospel, we prove that our faith was not real, that our faith was not genuine. If we continue, we prove we have been reconciled. If we don't continue, we prove that we have not been reconciled. You say, ah, okay, let's look at Hebrews. Been there a lot this morning. Hebrews is that book, chapter 4, uh, excuse me, chapter 6 and chapter 10. Everybody wants to go to it. says, hey, you can lose your salvation. We'll get there to Hebrews a few years. But in chapter 3, the author of Hebrews says, and he says the same thing that Paul says in Colossians 1. Look at it. Hebrews 3 says this. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance for him to the end. Aha! See? You're, that's, that's it. It says the same thing. He says, your salvation is dependent on you continuing to believe. Hold on, because if you don't, you lose it. Is that right? Look more closely. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. And if we don't hold fast, then we have not become partakers of Christ. It's not that we had Christ and lost him. It's that we never had him. Listen to me. Since salvation was none of our doing, you saw our deplorable condition. Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Since there was nothing we could do to earn our salvation, how is it possible to do anything to keep our salvation, or for that matter, to do anything to lose our salvation? Just like my being saved was totally resting on the grace of God and the strength of Christ's reconciling work and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, so my staying saved is totally resting on the grace of God through the strength of Christ's cross and the continued indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we got the whole Trinity involved in our salvation. You think you can wrestle it from Him? It is God who planned it. It is the Son who carried it out. It is the Spirit who applies it to your life. Paul is saying, we have been reconciled if we continue in the faith. And if we don't, we prove we have not been reconciled. But now listen to me. This is intended to be a warning. And I do not want to take away from the severity of this warning. The Colossian believers' faith was being assaulted by these false teachers. These false teachers had shown up, and they were diminishing the supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity of Christ's work. Sounds a lot like today. And Paul is saying, do not be moved away from the supremacy and sufficiency and necessity of Jesus. If you do... You are proving there's no saving faith. How you... One other thought. Paul is convinced in this verse that we will continue and dwell as we are by the Holy Spirit. This doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly saved will persevere. 
He is convinced that true saints will continue to follow. You see, verse 23, this is critically important, is written in a certain condition, certain class of condition in the Greek. And it could be translated this way. That word indeed means this. If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and indeed you will not moved away from the gospel. He was confident of their continued faithfulness. He was confident that they would not move away. But, this is a, more, a warning nonetheless, keep believing. Do not be sidetracked by heresy. Stay faithful to the gospel. This gospel, by the way, that he had so much confidence in that he could speak of it as being proclaimed in all the earth. He knew that Jesus was going to build his church and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. He knew that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. He was so confident of it that he could speak of it as being proclaimed under all creation of whom of which I was made a minister. And that transitions us to next week. But for now, here are my closing thoughts as we finish. We, when we were still sinners, actively opposed to God, He took the initiative to reconcile us to Himself. We, you understand the way that works. I always, you understand that Romans chapter 3 says there is n- there, there's none that seek God, right? You, you get that. You didn't seek God, He sought you. He took the initiative to reconcile you. That's called amazing grace. So my first question is this. Do you know that grace? Have you allowed the finished work of Christ on his cross to forgive you? Are you tired of trying to get God to like you? He already does through the work of his son. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive Christ. The second thing I would say is this. Paul tells us in Ephesians, same time he wrote Colossians, to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. So maybe, just maybe, we should be a little more active in our forgiveness in moving toward reconciliation. What do I mean? When wronged, that most egregious wrong that popped into your brain, maybe, just maybe, just suggesting, maybe we should move toward the offender rather than waiting for the offender to move toward us. And finally, I want to encourage you to continue in the faith. Do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And you stay close, you stand firm. In doing so, you prove the reality of your faith. Let's stand for prayer.